0: Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we continue our conversation with Wes Woodson. Wes is the founder and chief storyteller of The Hidden, a clothing brand that inspires young people to be their true selves. He is also a public speaker and the author of the book, I Have Anxiety, So What?, which will be released in the coming weeks. In part one of the interview, Wes opens up about his mental health challenges that ultimately sparked his passion for helping others through storytelling. This portion was released last week as episode 67, and we recommend listening to it as a starting point for this week's episode. This week, our conversation goes a bit deeper and Wes shares a vulnerable story from his childhood. At a young age, Wes was told that he had a learning disability just because he learned differently than his peers. He explains that he was not only teased for this label, but also severely limited by it. The narrative he was given by the system became his self-narrative. Luckily, his parents were incredibly supportive through these years and helped him navigate these challenges and develop self-belief. He has gone on to deliver a TED Talk, start a company, and most recently, write a book. Wes also describes how he views the relationship between success and happiness, as well as the attributes that he believes makes a great entrepreneur. Towards the end of the episode, Wes tells an incredible story about meeting Tommy Hilfiger in a bathroom, and this story serves as a reminder to always take your shot when given an opportunity. We hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with us and Wes Woodson. Thank you.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues.
0: My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more.
1: Yeah obviously as we're joking about some of the concepts that we were taught in school and the current education systems aren't as useful as what the teachers told us to be but i think jokes aside it does talk about the seriousness and the importance for us to talk about that right you talked about US currently as a healthcare system because it's <clears throat> on a very reactive framework we don't have a system in place to <clears throat> prepare for the second wave of pandemic, which is mental health uh, Mm -hmm. epidemic caused by the COVID, the virus side of that. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so systematically, there is definitely a need. There's definitely a demand to have some sort of an improvement upon the system that we have. Another systematic issue that I'm very passionate about is the system of education as a whole in the United States of America. And we, all three of us know how problematic and flawed that is and how much. Of, how much of a disservice that the education system has been for Americans, for the next generation, even for our generation. So I want to use that as a segue to talk about an earlier part of your life where you've told us uh, before the interview that you were diagnosed with special needs in terms yeah. of learning disability in school. And yeah. for the past nearly two hours of conversations, we have explored the identities We've explored the identity crisis. We've explored your strategies and how you were able to come to peace and own the identity yes. of yours. Uh, yeah. But when I view the brands and the identity, the macro overall identity of Wes Wilson, I see all our irony and contradiction. What I mean by that is, after you are diagnosed with social anxiety by the psychiatrist, you went on to deliver your first TED talk as a public speaker. As soon as you are diagnosed with learning disability in middle school, when you were in your town of Sharon, you decided to become a public speaker and not just any public speaker, but a, at one point ranked as the top speaker at the time in Massachusetts. And at a point of your uh, speaking career, you were considered as a top 10 public speaker in the nation. Yeah. So you were able to carry on and achieve things that almost weren't meant for you. Like these paths that you've tackled on, it's almost like God's like, wait a minute, Wes, you have a social anxiety. You probably shouldn't think about a career as a public speaker. Uh, Wes, you have a learning disability. You probably shouldn't become an author, but you were able to own that and come to peace with those. Um, So I'd love to talk about your experiences and your feedback on the other side. Now, reflecting upon all those and for you to talk about how the system of education deserves you growing up. Because obviously the problem isn't with you, it's with the system. Because if the system diagnosis was correct, that you truly had learning disability, you probably wouldn't become the person that you are today.
3: Thank you for saying that, man. I, I really appreciate that. And to really delve into the educational system, I start off my personal story, how I was treated, was we can go back and forth on how we feel about school in general. I think it's the common, it's the fad to say, you know, I'm going to drop out of school and start a multi-million dollar company. (laughs) (laughs) But like, we're not all Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. But uh, how the school system disserviced me was in school, right? We're taught that you have to color inside the lines. And I think personally, in the school I went to, if you dared to color outside the lines, you were kind of seen as deviant you were seen as, you know, oh, he has a learning disability. What I mean by that is just because I might read at a slower pace or I might take a little longer to internalize and problem solve a math equation, doesn't mean I'm bad at learning. It just means I learn differently. My entire kind of like from, it was in second grade to like fifth grade. I was told that I am a bad learner that I can't learn without some level of existence. It was like the voices outside of me became the internal voice of saying like, damn, like you can't, you can't learn this correctly. So you have to go into this other room outside of your classroom to be given intensive help. And while you're doing that, all your classmates are looking at you and like, why does Wes leave the room to go read the book? We're all reading it in this room. Oh, he's special. And then they start, you know, picking on you for that. And the acronym in the educational system that they use is special education. So if you look at that, S-P-E-D, SPED. And that was like a derogatory term that was used to call the kids who were in special needs. Oh, you're SPED, you're a SPED. It's it's equivalent of calling someone an idiot, essentially. And that's what I was called. Uh, I, I was called SPED, never, never forget. In sixth grade, a kid called me SPED, I almost punched him in the face. Cause I was like, you know, I'm not. I, I, I'm Just because I learned differently doesn't mean I can't learn at all, you know what I mean? And it was like this internal battle. So I had the kids calling me, you know, Leopard Boy, Oreo, Michael Jackson, Sped. It was very much of a pushback between me and my parents and my teachers, uh, trying to just show them that I'm not a bad learner. But they just kept putting label on me and label on me, saying he probably has ADD, ADHD, dyslexia. I'm not dyslexic. I, for those who are, that is a huge battle to fight through, like reading and, and not, you know, seeing sentences in a in a proper form, and, and that's a huge battle to go through. I don't have that, but just because I learned differently, I was told I did, you know what I mean? Um, so my, my entire point was my experience at an early age in school was just because I was a little bit deviant in terms of you know learning in a different way. I was told that I couldn't learn at all. Did all these resources to help me learn like everyone else did. And that's not who I was, you know? I ended up learning that more of a visual learner. I like to hear things and actually be told things. And I, I recognize patterns. So it takes me a while to recognize patterns. And I owe a lot of that to my mom. My mom is a mental health therapist and she's a school guidance counselor. So she was very much, she was my champ. She was my fighter. She was my advocate. She was my advocate that kind of fought on my behalf. And by the time I was in eighth grade, I left the special education program. And that was my first year on my own, without any assistance, without any intensive help, with like a, a teacher's assistant or going to a separate room or having extra time for exams. And my mom was telling me like, you will not be limited by what they're telling you. They put a ceiling on me and I didn't put that on myself. They put that on me. It comes full circle because my mom was telling me saying like, you are responsible for you. You know what I mean? Don't don't let them tell you what you, you, what you can and cannot learn. I feel bad for the kids who suffer with this because... It's terrible. Partially, I believe it's a little bit racially motivated. I think I was a, I was a black kid in a white classroom, and yes, I learned differently. I learned a little slower than others, but doesn't mean I can't learn, and they just put me in the, in the special needs program. That's such a disservice to so many kids, so many kids. And and when you think about the race component of it, like I mentioned before, I went to a all-boys all Catholic high school, and when I came to apply to colleges, I had Babson College, UPenn, Northeastern, Syracuse, uh, what else? Bryan University, Bentley University on my list, right? My STT scores, all right, they weren't the best, right? But I, at that point, I started my own nonprofit. I was already ranked top 15 in the nation for public speaking. I had all these accomplishments that to a college admissions officer, they would be like, oh, of course, come to our university. But to the guy that they hired to help seniors apply to colleges, he looked at me and said, all those who I just told you were reaches. And I wouldn't get into Babson and I wouldn't get to UPenn and I wouldn't get to Northeastern. And I got waitlisted at UPenn. You should right about that. I mean, I got waitlisted. I got into Babson College and I went on to go to Babson College and live out my dream. Well, that just shows you that. And by the way, I-, I should add that most of the African-American kids who were in that school were told that their schools were too of a reach. You know what I mean? But if someone else doesn't look like us. Oh, it's, sure, sure, come on, let me help you with some SAT prep, you know what I mean? And I think it comes full circle in the way that I learned that education and race are directly correlated. They are are, are directly related. And that is something that I had to battle with, but thanks to my mom and my dad, they fought with me, and they fought for me, and I escaped it. So
0: I, I feel bad for those who don't have advocates like that because they fall victim to it. And it sucks. It really sucks. Yeah. We appreciate you sharing, man, both from, as you're speaking, it's clear that that's one is really coming from the heart, your personal story growing up through a flawed education system. And I think it speaks to the idea of putting people and things in boxes, right? I think they like slapping a label on a specific problem or a specific (laughs) condition throughout this episode, we've explored the idea of identity. And I like to think about identity as a spectrum, right? We're all so different and so similar in so many different ways. And it's almost to what you mentioned, a disservice to slap a label on every single symptom that we may see, but really getting to, in my opinion, the root of those causes is like ultimately where the magic actually lies or where solutions can actually be formed. So you mentioned that your parents were advocates for you. And yes. that definitely makes me curious if you were an advocate. So this is just a hypothetical situation of you're able to put one page in front of every textbook in the country for everyone mm. from K through twelve. And that okay. one page would say like one to two sentences that every student would be able to read going into school every day. You know, maybe this comes from your personal experience growing up in the education system, or maybe more recently dealing with mental health so much, but what message would you like to deliver students with every morning before they begin their days?
3: You are enough. You are more than enough. And I felt like I wasn't. I felt like, I, I felt like I'll never forget this one time, I was in fourth grade. Did you guys have a computer labs in your school? Yeah. Yeah, we had computer labs. So we went to the computer lab one day to basically, but this was the days before Quizlet. You guys know what that is? And, and like, we, are, we would do these math equations, these timed math equations, um, on the computer screen. And, you know, I went with the class and we load up our computers. I remember, you know, we got on the screen and like the first equation, let's say it was like, I don't know, 36 times five. And, you know, there was going to be like shuffled uh, cards that we, you'd answer each question in a timely manner. And I raised my hand, but i not even trying to answer the first question. And I literally had the teacher come over, Miss Saunders, and I said, uh, I, can't, I can't do this because, you know, I go to a different room during math tests. Should I even be here right now? I don't think I can answer these questions. I automatically disqualified myself from even trying because I was told that you have a learning disability. And that person wasn't even in the room. So like their voice became my voice and I limited myself and I convinced myself that I wasn't enough. And it was thankful to my parents reminding me that I'm enough. I'm smart enough to be in that room because think about what it led to as a ripple effect. Imposter syndrome. You're not enough. That's, that's what imposter syndrome is. You think it's a mistake that you're in this room. And I often felt like that all the time. So in that book, I would write, you are more than enough. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Because, oh gosh, that that gets my get my heart up a little bit. <laughs> gets me frustrated a little bit. Because so many kids fall victim to that. And they just put a ceiling on themselves because someone else put the ceiling on them in the first place. And my parents remind me there is no ceiling that I can't knock. Like that logic lyric, like... How can the sky be the limit if there's, if there's footprints on the moon? I'm sure for the fucking moon and you're not <laughs> gonna stop me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, man. But yeah, that, that gets me hyped up. But thank you for that question. I would literally put that you are more than enough and don't let anyone tell you otherwise.
1: With that answer of yours, the key ingredients that I think you acknowledge and we also acknowledge collectively, your parents were yeah. the variable that truly yes. separated you from the pack. Your parents were the reasons why you are the public speaker. You are the soon-to-be published author that you are. Is they were 100%. able to instill confidence in you, just like Obama's slogan of "Yes, I can."
3: I remember, I ran for public office in uh, sixth grade, and I used "West Weekend" as
1: a West yeah, Weekend. Nice, that was nice. Weird. Nice. Yes, then- <laughs> I love the uh, play on words, or you know, or whether that's MLK's "I Have a Dream," right? Yeah. And I think it's all about self-empowerment, and you know, because how can you empower the others if you Don't even believe in yourself and if you aren't empowered by that. So with all that said, going all the way back to full circle, we talked about the importance of support system. And you talked about the mission statements of your book. The one message you want to convey to the people is that support system is so important, right? And we looked at your story right now is that the key ingredients and the variable that truly made you who you are your talents aside, your ability to storytell aside, your ability to curate stories aside, is that you had support system, period. Yeah, I did. And I, did. I think that it's almost a home run to bring your message home, right? Is that yeah. be curious, but also have that support system. Because like you talked about, how can you play basketball? How can you compete on the highest level without a coach or without a teammate? Yeah. And fortunately, you had the best teammates at the time, which is your parents. So. My parents,
3: man, and uh, the only reason why they they were like that, I mean, to, to come full circle with the education system, they have two master's degrees each. They went to college and then they got their masters twice. So I mean, like, they already knew that education, especially as people of color, can be a way to be to mobilize essentially. So essentially, you know, ascend to a higher level than your than your ancestors were. Because I also read this quote. It was a T-shirt that said, "Like I am my ancestors' wildest dreams." And I want that. I want to be the, the living proof of that. I know I know, I am, but I, I want to keep pressing the gas to keep living that out every day because, you know, it wasn't too long that people looked like me we were, were slaves. We were, we were a piece of property. You know I mean? We couldn't go to a bachelor college. We couldn't start a clothing line. We couldn't give a public speech. We, could, we couldn't do that. We couldn't write a book. We couldn't even read books. Like, we weren't allowed to read books. So, like, I just want to, you know, basically do what my parents uh, did for me, for someone else. Um, And just to say that like this is possible. This is possible owning your anxiety is possible I really thank you for nodding my parents because I don't and like when I do interviews I don't give them enough nod sometimes people do think I all this is internal and Self-sufficient this was this was handed to me You know what I mean? Like my parents if I had any inheritance It was my parents uh, giving this belief in me that uh, I can shoot for the moon and I talk about that in the book too. Yeah,
0: appreciate that knowledge exceptionally because from the way you talk about both your mission, your book everything that you're doing, all these accomplishments it's clear that it's not about you it's about this larger larger problem, larger idea that we're all trying to make sense of and really contribute to and I think to what you mentioned of shooting for the stars, shooting for the moon, all of these accomplishments that you've accomplished to me this introduces the idea of what success looks like you know, I think probably going – I'm speculating here, but going to Babson College, you've probably been surrounded with a lot of entrepreneurial, go-getter, yeah, high-achieving, man. like-minded people. But through your experience growing up with having mental health with the help of your parents, like obviously they were close and a good influence over your life. But then also right. I assume – Babson was completely different. What does success look like for you for now? How have you kind of navigated that happy balance of happiness, success, giving back to a purpose, all of those kinds of ideas? How do you define success and how do you recommend people define it for
3: themselves? Totally, man. To be transparent with writing the book and stuff like that. and I'm not getting a a, a week-to-week paycheck. You know I mean, this is a, a bet on myself. I am nowhere near financially independent. You know, I'm still living at home with my mom or my, my stepdad, but I'm still working towards this larger mission that's going to come with this payoff later down the road. That's kind of what I perceive entrepreneurship as. You know, you're not trying to get the immediate reward, but you're trying to get uh, the long-term reward, and which for me is impact. But it, for me, I talk to my therapist about how I tried to, to define my success as a monetary thing I try to equate it to money I saw my friends, you know, have bonuses And fancy cars and nice apartments And I'm like, damn, like I, I don't I don't have that, you know what I mean But on the flip side You know, those friends who have those things They're not necessarily fully happy I'm extremely happy with what I'm doing You know what I mean And I've learned now that I'm kind of outside of The bubble that I once was in Many of my classmates Equated their success to what internship they had uh, how much money they were making that summer, uh, how much revenue was your company making. Uh, that was a big measure of success at that school was how much revenue you're gonna make. I fell into that trap a little bit, but I really realized that how I actually view success is the level of impact that I have on someone else and the amount of happiness and fulfillment it's bringing me. Because I truly believe if you, if you follow your passion, which is for me storytelling and empowering other people through storytelling, the money will follow. Um, and I've definitely tried to remind myself that how I view my success is waking up every day and doing something that I am passionate about in order to impact someone else in a positive way. That is how I view my success. And to encourage other people, how, to, how do they view their personal view of success? Is what you ask yourself, is what you do, is that you want to do it? Or is that what you think other people would want you to do? That was kinda like the constant question I, I asked myself. Because you're right. If I was my friends who had the full time jobs, they wouldn't be happy to do what I'm doing because I'm not making any money right now. But like for me, I'm happy with putting out a book. I'm happy with doing interviews like this. You know, I love this stuff. I love that this could possibly end up in the radio of someone else and just hearing our conversation and then having them see their anxiety or how they view their own version of success or how they view their parents in a different way. I love that. I love that based on the stories we're all sharing right now. That's what I love. So I go back to that. How you view success, is that your version
0: or is that the version that people want you to see? So well said, man. And I think the thing that you said that really stands out to me is how individual and unique it is to every one person. You know, we all have... Inherent and individual interests and desires, and really what we want to like, people are just naturally wired differently, right? Yeah, and I think that's something that I have been thinking a lot about recently because I'm still currently working in corporate finance. I live for these conversations on the weekend so I can almost yeah. use that as a means for an end to have these conversations yeah, on the weekends and do things that I really love. But there begins to be a balance of to what impact do certain things or certain jobs have on the way you live the rest of your life. So as you pointed out, we're wired differently, but we can all do different things. So I'm just beginning to ask questions around what values might differ between myself and my coworkers. How would we be looking for different things in life or alignment and misalignment? So it's really, I've just been trying to ask better questions around who I'm surrounding myself with, what their motivations are, and what their definitions of success are, because, like you said, they're subjective to each specific person, and I think we have the power and the ownership to define those things for ourselves.
3: Right, totally agree with that. And I think how I came to this level of understanding because also, I don't want to like you know downplay anyone's choice of career paths because you know? like honestly, like you're saying like I have family, I have friends who, who do need to kind of like go take a job at, I don't know, Target, for instance, you know, working at Target. Like forget corporate or non-corporate. Just it's like, like, just like Target, you know what I mean? And they have to do that to pay bills because they're, they're independent. They're, like, their parents have died and they don't even have anything to fall back on. I'm ex- incredibly privileged I'm living at home. I understand, fully recognize my privilege, but I also fully recognize what I prioritize. And what I prioritize is my mental health. And growing up, as much as my parents were an advocate for me, they were a model for me. And I would see my dad, who was a business executive, and he still is a, a business executive at a hotel chain now. And he would always come back. And not to say that that's why my parents got divorced, because obviously things don't work out for different reasons, but he was always really sad. You know what I mean? He was very frustrated. He was always angry. And he always come home, and. I know no day is perfect, no work day is perfect. No day at all is perfect, but he was always sad, and I always observed that as a kid. You know what I mean? I always I always observed that. And I, and I knew this thing that adults did was work. And I was able to attach at a young age that, like, I wanted my work to make me happy. You know what I mean? I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that was entrepreneurship. I didn't know all these words. I didn't know that. But I just knew that I wanted my work to make me happy. And actually, my mom is the one who worked at one of the, at the time was the what, big six, one of the big six accounting firms. Big four. Um, and she kind of, now it's the big four, right? It, but it was the big six back in like the 80s. Mm-hmm. And she left the accounting firm and that's where she started her passion of working with kids because that's what makes her happy and she loves that. And now the pay is obviously different, but like she loves because it makes her happy. That's what drives her everyday to do what she does is to kind of feed that passion of working with kids and it was like my mom and dad were two different, you know what I mean? My, my mom was more so, she followed her passion, my dad followed the check. And I was attributing at an early age, watching both my parents, I'm like, okay, more happy than the other. Both of them are successful, but like, happiness, I really, really attribute that. I really associated that. And I've, I've had internships uh, in corporate America, and I, I've, I've worked at a bank, I've, I've worked at a a bankrupt company, I, I watched the, the company be bought out of bankruptcy. It was kind of crazy. Um, and I just watched as all the co-workers were older than me, they were sad. I didn't I didn't want that. You know what I mean? I didn't want that. And what I found was this, storytelling and trying to make a way of, of making my passionate. But it scares me because I know how I am. Like you said, we're all wired differently. It scares me because I know how I am when I get in a dark place. And I don't want to be in a dark place. I don't. Um, I know my happiness was definitely a priority of mine, and that should be uh, a thing that you take into account when you are viewing your own definition of success.
1: To each their own, is the saying to I would back to. to. Each their own, exactly. Yeah, and I think that brings the message home from earlier is. I think this is the reason why we're urging the listeners to go take yourself on a date. Go watch a movie by yourself. Go have lunch by yourself. Because without that curiosity, without doing the work, without intentionally examining your path to ensure that it's a self-destined path or a path destined by other people. And like I talked about, there's a difference between when someone else imposes a ceiling or a cap to your future versus when you yourself cab yourself into the future. And right. oftentimes with your story, your ceiling cap was caused by other people's projection. So I think we need to do some work. That's the only way to truly uncover what your path is, right? It's yes. through curiosity, through the work. Yes. Um, and with that, I want to ask you a, a question. You talked about your biggest calling and passion lies in mental health. And obviously yeah. you're using different vehicles uh, such mm-hmm. as your I know your clothing brand back in college you use yeah. that as your storytelling avenue yeah. with your TED talk with your yeah. book most recently and all those are different vehicles to deliver your mission statements and your passion and calling in mental health yeah so mm-hmm. on that end how have you advocated for mental health within your own communities because we talked about stigma for a bit and mm-hmm. as you and I both know in particular black communities and Asian communities and also like Latino communities, but a lot of the POC communities are heavily stigmatized about what therapy is or what mental health is or talking about feelings. Um, So I love for you to see how you've manifested your efficacy and your passion within your own communities as a black man who is hyper self-aware, who is hyper passionate about mental health because you come with that expertise and you come with that passion. So mm-hmm. I imagine the burden of that also uh, falls onto you as well, because every yeah. responsibility comes with the, uh, with some sort of a burden. Does. So I'd just love to see how yourself try to penetrate through that barrier within your own communities, trying to empower other people through mental health.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, because at first I always thought it was hard. Um, I grew up in, like I said, a suburban town, so it didn't have many people of color in it. Um, so I knew as I kind of wanted to talk about this and kind of advocate about mental health in the black community, I know I wasn't gonna be received um, with open arms because within the black community, there's definitely this, another stigma of its own. It's not a stigma that I'm too proud of, but I have been called, it's a racial term, I guess you can say, but like to it give a little context to it. In slavery, the time of slavery, there were the the slaves who worked in the fields and those slaves who worked in the house. So slaves worked in the house were more so articulate. They were able to read Um, in the eyes of slaves who worked in the the fields. They were the ones who kind of got it good. You know what I mean? Um, And I think that stigma itself or that kind of like view of each other is kind of what eats our own culture alive. Unfortunately, Um, we kind of, it's also the crabs in the bucket mentality of where, one is kind of getting out of the barrel, and the other one's bringing back down. Um, and that's definitely a thing in the black community. Knowing that, and my parents kind of taught me about that at age two. I was kind of scared. I was really kind of scared. Of, like, how would my people look like me? Kind of interpret and receive my message. I've done talks. I actually spoke at my mom's middle school, and they didn't receive it as well. You know, I come in wearing a blazer and a button-down long-sleeve T-shirt. And, you know, some jeans and I'm talking like this and they're just, uh, you know, what I mean? like, I, I, I'm I not really attainable. They don't really resonate with me at first. But I realized that when I kind of knocked down, I sold them like, you know, like, actually, I am like you. You know what I mean? And I talk about my struggles about depression and my conflicts with the police and how that is triggering for me. And it goes back to vulnerability. when I'm vulnerable with, with people they really do understand it and they, they really take value in it. And I learned about this is when I gave a talk at Babson this past fall at the black student union, I was president of that, of that club. Then when I graduated, they invited me back to talk about mental health because so many of people of color, students of color on campus were struggling. They didn't really know. And I just came out and I just told the truth. You know what I mean? I told my truth. It comes down to what I told you at the beginning of this whole conversation about like when you knock down that wall, no matter if you're black, white, pink, whatever, green, they connect with that. So how I have gone back and advocated, I've given talks, I'm writing this book I've mentioned about the stigma in the black culture and the black community around mental health. And any chance I get, I just tell my story. And I have friends of mine of color who reach out to me and ask me, how do I find a therapist? And it's, I, I know it's working. So there is a positive impact, but it started with me first being afraid and slowly slowly but surely uh, the walls started to break down and I started to tell the truth and be vulnerable and here we are.
0: Yeah, man. Really just kind of want to acknowledge you for bringing those ideas to light, both in Mm -hmm. the male space. I think masculinity in general is sometimes segregated from these types of conversations, but especially in the black community. Yes. I know there's got to be so much information that needs to be brought to light and you kind of acting through that is clearly doing so and i think the other i guess piece it's shining a light on mental health concepts but also doing what brings your purpose to light kind of taking that entrepreneurial challenge which is something that i've certainly been struggling with and i know a lot of other people have been of you know to what ends am i willing to go for that purpose and it's clear that you're putting yourself aside, everything else aside for your purpose. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk through a little bit. We've mentioned your book a lot, but I know your clothing brand also has a lot to do with mental health and just yeah. what that entrepreneurship journey has been like over the last yeah.
3: few years. Yeah, I think, you know, over the course of our, our conversation, we, we touch on so many elements of, you know, parents being my advocate uh, telling me that, you know, the sky's not the limit. I'm still in the quote of logic. I, <laughs> I love that so much. The sky's not the limit, but there's a the footprint on the moon. I talked about that. We talked about education system. We talked about mental health, but entrepreneurship. Obviously, that's how it all comes and married. It's married together. Like you mentioned before, I started a clothing company when I was a junior. It kind of took off when I was a junior, but the idea came to me my spring semester of my sophomore year in college. The idea was kind of simple. The idea was that I was kind of going through a breakup at that time. And I was really really kind of being introspective. And I was really talking about, you know, at that point, I was still hiding my spots. I was still kind of like, you know, not really being open about it. And I was struggling a lot with it. Um, And I was angry. And there was so many mixed emotions happening at that time. I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to create something that would empower maybe myself and others to never feel the way that I did when I was 12. So I didn't want to hide who I was, I was done. I was basically done pretending to be okay, pretending that the spots weren't a part of me um, and I wanted to embrace it. So I had this idea to start with a company. That's where the idea started, a company that would achieve that ethos to empower people to be their true selves, essentially be the way that I did not feel like I was my entire childhood. I was like, how do people express themselves? You know what I mean? How do, I was going through all these questions. Again, playing Marco Polo with my, my feelings. I was like, how do, I was asking so many questions. Like, what, how, how do they, people express themselves? Oh, they wear clothes. So I was like, all right, I should make a clothing company. You know, it made sense because I've always been into streetwear. I always wanted to buy the Supremes and the Diamond Supplies and the Hundreds. And I could never afford it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I had those aspirations. So I was like, you know what? Let's make a clothing company. And I came up with that phrase, be not afraid to stand alone, because I think when you're alone, you learn a lot about yourself. And I had that idea. Uh, and literally, I'm a person of spirit. I believe in God. I cannot make this up. The vision for like the hidden in terms of like the logo, this this you're looking at right here is very simplistic. That's what it was. I just, the hidden with the red line through the word hidden uh, to show like to not hide who you are, to achieve that mission. And it was almost like in terms of a creativity standpoint, it was putting pieces of the puzzle together. Every Babson student is given a laptop that has Adobe, the Adobe Suite. So I know you guys are an Adobe um, Audition, but like we had Photoshop, Illustrator, and I had no knowledge of either of those things. So I just kind of went in there and I started finkling around and much of entrepreneurship is just trial and error. And I was just trying what worked and what didn't. And I put together this, this kind of mock-up of a hoodie went and go f- i found a friend of mine who he runs the biggest sneaker convention in new england so like a basically picture if you're familiar with like complex con or sneaker con uh where they can you know buy and sell and trade sneakers whatever that's what he does and he sells merchandise too so i was like you have a supplier who makes your clothes he's like yeah can you connect us sure and i just did that i've been working with him ever since he's been my supplier for literally two and a half years now shout out nick It's been a crazy journey of just trial and error, asking what I didn't know, and (laughs) failing, and then just reiterating, you know what I mean? And what I did was to launch the brand. That's actually very important. That's where storytelling comes involved. Because obviously the brand had very much of an intention. I wanted to empower people to never feel the way that I once did. I wanted to tell people that. So I literally went on medium.com, wrote a blog post about what I just told you about my personal story about dealing with spots and bullying, and at that point, it was kind of feeling alone. I described it as loneliness. And I wrote my whole story, posted on Facebook. Uh, (laughs) I was at home when I did that, and I I came back to campus, and I remember it just exploded. All my friends uh, on Facebook, Instagram, people were spreading it via email. It kind of went viral on on campus, and before I knew it, the hidden people knew about, people who I didn't even know knew about it, and I was shocked, you know what I mean? I was very, very, very grateful for it, because it was kind of my earliest experience of once you share your story, once you are vulnerable, people will be vulnerable with you, Um, and I was receiving letters, emails, text messages saying, my mom has vitiligo, or, wow, Wes, I really resonate with your story, like, keep going, and... Uh, and they ended up buying the hoodie. And I, I had printed 22 pieces of it, like 22 hoodies, sold out the first day. That was nuts. And it's kind of been a rinse and repeat. Uh, how I run the business now, it's very much of a exclusive basis. Since the pandemic, I, my supply chain has taken a slight hit. So I've had to kind of reiterate. Um, but I kind of make these exclusive drops once every two months to balance everything with the book and stuff like that. So it's kind of slowed down. But that's my clothing company. And that's kind of how I started. And yeah, it's been just a one crazy introspective ride, I should say.
0: I definitely want to peer into that introspection side of entrepreneurship because I think those things come so hand in hand. And just, you know, you kind of left it off as your entrepreneurship journey being an introspective journey. Mm -hmm. How are those things linked in your mind? You're constantly asking. I mean, it's a constant internal battle. You're good
3: enough. Is this idea good enough? Um, the market was telling me it was good enough, but it's this constant, you know, battle with your own self-doubt, you know what I mean? And you're constantly trying to outdo yourself. And that's where I think it's the introspection, because I believe in life you are trying to beat who you were yesterday. And that is the only person you should, you should compare yourself to. And the world of entrepreneurs and the business, you should really focus on yourself as being your biggest competitor. Obviously, you want to be aware of like other competitors. I don't want to be naive, but you should compare yourself to you. And I had to learn that, and entrepreneurship has taught me that. Compare yourself to you, and actually, you know, can I share a funny story? Because now I, I know how one of those cool stories loops in with, with the billionaire story. This makes sense. Yeah, let it rip. So, so literally, when I was at Babson, uh, every year they hold like an entrepreneurship conference at a different part of the world. It's been in like Dubai. It's been anyway. So that year, it was my junior year. No, sorry, sorry, it was my sophomore spring. So I had just started the hidden. And they chose like twelve students to be student ambassadors at this conference, and it was being held in Madrid, Spain. And they pay for everything; they pay for flight, hotel. All you got to pay for is your Uber from like Babson to Boston Logan Airport, and that's it. Everything else is covered. And I was like, bet. So I go, and my job, I'm starting a clothing company. So I'm like, all right, this is cool. So I go on this trip. Turns out, uh, Tommy Hilfiger is like he's keynoting the whole thing. He's he's the headliner. Of like the whole conference, and I'm like, they got Tommy Hilfiger to like, would really come here, like he's a he's a fashion icon. I mean, I'm not a fashion designer, but like, you never know. Like, I could just talk to him and see what happens. You know what I mean? I think another part about entrepreneurship is having this blind optimism, <laughs> like you know, you hope for the best. I mean, so like, literally, I'm on the plane reading his memoirs, and I'm like, yo, I'm I'm studying this guy. I'm like, trying to you know learn everything I can about him. Like, I I'm not gonna lie to you, I don't even know. Tommy Hilfiger stuff but I, I was just very much impressed by him so I literally land in in Madrid, Spain and I have the mission of meeting Tommy Hilfiger so we're at the the first day of the event it's in this like fancy ballroom and all of a sudden like we're stationed at the like the steps to be the escorts for people to walk in and just greet them all of a sudden like you would think like I don't know A billionaire walks in the room, because it it did, and he walks in the room. There's a huge entourage of, like, everyone's, like, trying to get his attention. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, oh, shoot, that's Tommy Hilfiger. There he is. (laughs) He's the guy in the book. And I see him, like, escape, like, the crowd to go in, like, this small bathroom. I don't know if you've ever been in a European bathroom, but they're, like, dumb small. And, like, I was like, this is my chance. So I go in the bathroom. I go in the bathroom, and he's peeing. There's two urinals. I pee next to him. I'm, like, <laughs> I, 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 I'm next to him. And I'm just like looking straight. Mind you, in my mind, I know it's Tom Illfinger right next to me. He's like, he's short. He's like five three. Like he's short. He I'm I'm five ten. So he's five three. He's pretty short. If you, you know those like dividers in the urinal? All I see is his little white hair. To be honest. To be honest, like, I'm like, oh shoot. You're short. And um, so he goes to like the mirror to wash his hands and he's looking at himself. And I'm right next to this guy, mind you, his network is like $2 billion or whatever. And I look at him and I'm like, you're Tommy Hill figure. And he looks at me, he's like, Yes, I am. And I'm like, so like, I have so much anxiety, bro. I'm like, yo, this is crazy. I'm fanboying. I'm like, I expect your memoir, And we're talking so he's like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then he leaves. That was it. He didn't wash his hands. That was gross. <laughs> <laughs> that was gross. So that was pretty gross. Um, and I'm like, oh, man, I missed my chance. One thing that I also want to say about entrepreneurship is you have to take advantage of an opportunity no matter when it comes up, whenever it presents itself. You have to fully take advantage of the opportunity. So when I was thinking about my parents who have always told me, you know, shoot for the stars and it's like, don't put a ceiling on yourself. I was like, I have to talk to him again. So literally as the whole event's going on, I ended up leaving. Where all the events was happening, like they had a bunch of like you know speakers and panels, and Tommy Hilfiger had left. Like he gave his talk and left, and the whole event was in a hotel, so he was staying at that hotel. I ended up going upstairs because it was downstairs. I went going upstairs, and I was outside just like chilling, and I was like kind of upset. I thought I lost my opportunity to speak to Tommy Hilfiger. I'm like, damn, like, I really missed once in a lifetime opportunity, and I look over to my my side, and I see this white dude with hipster glasses and Adidas track sweatpants and shoes and a blazer. And I'm like, there's only one man in the world who would dress like that. <laughs> like, who would dress like that? And it was him. It was it was him. So I go up to him, and we start just talking. And he started showing me, like, collaborations with Tommy Hilfiger and Zendaya, the musician that just came out this past fall. Like, this was back in 2018. He was showing me stuff two years out, which I thought was crazy. I was... It was such a mind-boggling experience. And you ever heard of like the phrase of a, like cock blocking, I guess you can say. Mm -hmm. yes. so then as I'm prepared to pitch him my brand, pitch him my clothing company I just started, one of the other student ambassadors comes up and says, don't you live in Miami? Turns out they're neighbors, and they started talking. And I was like, oh (laughs) my gosh, bro. So I lost it, I lost my opportunity to pitch my brand to a billionaire. But it was definitely an experience that I think I took the risk. I just kind of kept hounding him. Um, I, I lost the
2: unfortunate, but it was definitely an experience that is worth mentioning about my entrepreneurship journey. Definitely,
0: man. And you're no longer saying, what if? You know, like even though you didn't get to pitch him the idea, you still had that second connection. Yeah. And, you know, there isn't that questioning of what if I was able to pitch him or what if I was able to say yeah. more in the bathroom? You had that interaction, got to see some plans for two years out, which I think is also fascinating.
3: Crazy, crazy, man. I'm going to find a photo of us talking and I'm going to send it to you because it's great. Oh, nice. It's, 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 someone, someone took a picture of us, mm-hmm. of like talking. Uh, I would love to share with you guys. It, it, it's, it's hilarious.
0: <laughs> Definitely, man. Yeah, we'll share that on our socials for sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. To plug this story. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, Wes, thanks for an amazing story. I can't even imagine or put myself in that shoes of yours to what that butterfly feeling must have been like facing one of the most iconic figures in this world that ever lived in the fashion industry. So that's amazing. And I'm happy that you were able to still get a second opportunity even though you were opportunity blocked by your fellow guy who had that <laughs> Miami connection. Yes. Uh, but as long as you you didn't cop block yourself, I think that's the best. And that's like what Aiden talks about. You at least you don't have any regret. Right. You know, so right. I think that's the I think a life well lived is a life with minimum regrets. So I on agree. that end I want to affirm that with you. So since we were talking about your entrepreneurship journey and yeah. some of the takeaways that you've learned from your own personal journey. And we've been talking a lot about Babson as a hub of entrepreneurship, and it is the number one entrepreneurship program in the world. So you must have had a quite a bit of encounters, uh, nonetheless, to come across a series of different entrepreneurs. Uh, some may be better than the others. I'm sure you've met some mediocre ones, good ones, or the great ones, like Tommy himself. So with your collective experience, uh, what are some of the patterns? Since you talked about your ability to recognize patterns Throughout your lives, what are some of the patterns you've recognized and realized by interacting with, with your fellow peers from the <laughs> hub of entrepreneurship like Babson, and in your experience, what's truly separates the great entrepreneurs to just good entrepreneurs? Totally, totally, you're right. I have you know met and conversed with many
3: entrepreneurs from a, across many different industries, from apparel to uh, live events to food to coffee I mean, it, it, it extends to tech everywhere i grew up also watching shark tank i'm mean, right i love that show i think that's what kind of way really drove that entrepreneurial bug in me i also grew up like i mean i still listen to how i built this by guy Raz, one of my favorite podcasts ever but one of the the key traits that i learned at babson what separated the i'll say entrepreneurs to entrepreneurs because it's, i think it's There's a divide. People always say, oh, I I wish I could start that business. I wish I could do that. And there's those who actually go out and do it. Like, you know what I mean? actually walk the talk. I'll admit, like, when I was in, when I first went there, I was, I thought maybe I was a entrepreneur, you know what I mean? I I, I thought, I don't have the capability of this. But what changed it is actually, I learned what makes a good, uh, actually a great entrepreneur, like you said. And what I realized was, they believe that they are meant to solve this problem, because business is about solving problems they are meant to solve this problem. They're the best person that can be equipped to solve this problem, but they also know they don't have all the answers. So they have have that genuine curiosity to learn those answers. So it's like you're self-confident, but you're humble. And it's it's that walking that narrow path, that narrow line of like, you're not conceited because you're not saying like, you're the best and you have all the answers. You're saying, I'm the best to try to solve this problem. Mind you, I know nothing. But it's because I know I'm the best, I'm gonna get those answers. The other part that I think what makes a great entrepreneur and what I've learned is consistency. Is consistency, it's literally that. There's no secret, there's no uh, shortcut, there's no guru book, audio tape, YouTube channel, I don't know, pill you can take that will say, you can take it at that moment and become an entrepreneur like like a billionaire tomorrow, there's nothing like that. You can read all the books in the world you want, but nothing beats just showing up every single day, and I learned that from the friend of mine who runs that shoe convention I was telling you about earlier. What makes him a great entrepreneur is he is—he's an animal when it comes to consistency. When I say you know, obviously when you think about an entrepreneur, you, you want to—you're building a skyscraper, you know—you're building an empire, you're building a business from scratch from the foundation up. But that for him, I learned, it is brick by brick by brick. He literally has thousands of people come to his events. I think when before pandemic, it was like three times a year he would do an event, and he had upwards of like five thousand people at his event easily. He sold out Gillette Stadium here before. Uh, mind you, the kid's younger than me. I learned that he literally reaches out to all of those people one by one by one. You know how much time that is. Like that is crazy. But that just shows me that if you want to achieve success, if you want to make a million dollars. You want to? In my case, if I want to inspire one million people, I gotta show up every single day to talk to at least one. You know what I mean? And hopefully, with through the consistency, through the self belief, and through the humility, I
0: will be a successful entrepreneur, a successful storyteller. um It comes down to those two things. I'm hearing entrepreneurship as a practice, right? This yes. kind of comes full circle, What we talked about earlier, you know, those ongoing things, practicing over and over again that consistent habits or consistent action and consistency as a whole that you mentioned and i really love the balance between self-belief and humility that you brought up because i think they're so interconnected even though they seem juxtaposing at times of like how can i have self-belief and humility at the same time but the other idea that i want to pick your brain about is alignment in that sense is like you mentioned the self-belief, but it was self-belief in a specific purpose, right? So it's like aligned with that path. I mean, skills almost come here or there. Some people have different skills than others, but really what I'm hearing in both your streetwear brand as well as the storytelling is an alignment of purpose, right? It's not belief in your, I mean, there is a belief in your ability to storytell, but also a belief in why you're telling those stories. Correct. In your experience and what you've seen in other entrepreneurs, the idea of alignment, what comes up for you there?
3: Yeah, I I think it's such an important topic to talk about because I don't really think about that. I don't don't really think about the idea of alignment. It just seems so natural that you just don't even think. It feels like second nature. You don't even think about it. I really do agree that you kind of do have to, I guess, find what you are extremely good at. Everyone is extremely good at something storytelling comes easier to me than it would someone else. You know what I mean? I think everyone has at least one thing. And how you find that one thing and become aligned on that one thing is, I think there's a few ways. Um, Simon Sinek, he wrote the book, Start With Why. I think it actually is my favorite TED Talk about why we do what we do. He says how, how you can find your purpose is by asking people around you, if you could use one word to describe me, one word, what would that be? We have to trust the person who's going to tell you. And they'll kind of, you know, you're going to go through, like, you know, the list, and uh, they might say intelligent, they might say uh, storyteller. I think for me, that kept coming up for me. Like, public speaker, storytelling kept coming up for me, no matter who I spoke to. So it, it wasn't that they were validating what I was doing. They were kind of opening my eyes to what I was doing. That's when I became aligned. Now I take this passion and this ability I have to articulate and form narratives and I channel it into what I do. The best way I put it is like I have a glass of water that is storytelling and I have cups and I just pour a little bit in in all these cups. And all those cups are ventures or projects or connections. It's how I am as a person. I think that really comes off to the people kind of just opening my eyes to what was already inside of me because I believe we are all of us are born with a purpose. We just have to be brave enough to look for it.
1: I think that talks about the idea that you're not really seeking inspiration or you're not really, it's not an external influence, right? You're simply tapping into what's already there. You're you're not really seeking for avenues or ways to channel that into you, trying to become the storyteller, Wes Whitson. But the identity of a storyteller, Wes Whitson's already resides within you. And you simply lean on to the other people to uncover that. And that's what alignment is, right? You're... You're not leaning towards some way, but you're literally just waiting for you to be realigned or aligned with your true self. And that's the alignment to me is because that's that's what we talk about, the importance of talking about your feelings. That's the importance of leaning into curiosity to take yourself on a date. Ultimately, whether it's through therapy, like the navigation system we talked about or through our coach. Uh, whether you're using a british male's voice or morgan freeman's <laughs> voice on ways or whoever whatever navigation system you opt into to use at the end of the day the entirely purpose of that is to align who you are to who you want to become and make yeah. sure there is a maximum in sync synchronicity of yourself the past the future and where your path is heading and i think uh, that's very evident through your storytelling
3: thank you man i want to add one more thing too that this might actually uh, for your listeners, and even for, for all three of us, it might just like be something to way really you think about. I love movies because movies are just, are just stories. And no one tells a better story uh, like Disney. I love the new Disney movie that came out. was it, Pixar? I think, what, Soul? Was it a solo Disney movie, I think? It's an animated movie voiced by Jimmy Fox about a jazz musician who has this ambition of becoming a professional jazz player, right? He has this ambition. He thinks it's his life's purpose, to find you know, being a, a jazz player at the, the highest level, right? But in this in this movie, there's a parable that is shared um, about a fish, and a fish goes up to this older fish, and he's like, oh, he, he tells the older fish, I want to swim one day, swim in the ocean. And the older fish is like, what are you talking about? Like you are in the ocean. He's like, no, it's no, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Like one day I'm gonna get there, and I'm just like, whoa, that that story is crazy because we think that. We, we have to get something external in terms of like some of a validation of being like, no, you're, you're supposed to do this. You're doing this. Instead of actually taking a second to be like, no way, I'm already living it. I didn't realize my entire life, I've been telling stories since the jump. I used to do this stupid thing where I put my teddy bear in the middle of my room. I would take like a pen like this and I would pretend I was walking back and forth talking to my teddy bear as if I was talking to thousands of my teddy bear. And then I gave a TED talk 16 years later. I was always doing this. You know what I mean? I was always doing this. Nothing really came and being like, oh, like, you're now a storyteller. Here you go. Like, I was always doing that. It just took people opening my eyes to it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that's how we should go about living our lives. It's just continually showing up and it kind of reveals itself to you. Um, I wanted to share that because, like, I think so many people are waiting for the coconut to fall on their head and just, like, oh, this. Like, I gotta know. it's, you're always, I think we're born with a purpose, and slowly but surely that is unraveled to us. But when it's always been in us, it's just, we have to kind of look within for that. Because um, when I thought about that, it was so scary. I would literally do that when I was four years old. I would sit my teddy bear on the thing, and I would just, pace back and forth as if I was an orator and I was four you know what I mean I I don't know what a TED talk was at that point I couldn't even say TED you know Uh, but
0: yeah but it beautifully shows that that storytelling identity has always been there from the jump it's always there it gets lost you made such a good important point there you know it's continuing to unravel but I think the big thing that stands out for me is the responsibility of ourselves to go look for it and to be aware and intentional of those things that spark the joy or spark that feeling of purpose or that feeling of alignment that we've talked so much about
3: yeah, and yeah it, because li- life won't like just give it to you Tommy Hilfiger wasn't going to come to me or he wasn't going to come to me and say are you Wes no know who I, am. <laughs> know who I am I know who he is I have to go to him therapy isn't going to cure my anxiety me just sitting here is not going to like just talk about my problems all the time it isn't going to cure my life I have to go do something about it. We have to take a sort of action. And finding purpose is the same thing. It's not just going to come to you. You can sit here and chant a thousand affirmations. But if you don't take any movement and do anything, it's not going to come in fruition. So you have to do something to take a level of action. I think people just don't understand that, I guess.
1: Yeah, beautifully said, man. And as we talked about from you know, the past few hours of these conversations, you were talking about how many people, especially as men, but also as black men, as POC men in their communities, as collective creatures, men as a whole, were all chasing that street credits, right? You talked about how black men don't really talk about feelings because I'm not sure if you've seen enough Hollywood movies, but talking about feelings isn't the most effective way to accumulate street credits, you know? so. You once again brought up and re-reminded all of us the importance of curiosity. Stay curious because without staying curious, all the benefits, all the alignments, the intentional alignments will never happen. And even though we are born, I also subscribe to the same idea that every single one of us, whether you're Christian or not, everyone is born with their predestiny. And everyone has a series and a wide array of different predestinies but the only way to tap into that predestiny like you have is to constantly work towards that alignment. Uh, because I I deeply believe this, that most people in this world, unfortunately do not live up to their full potentials or never tap into their predestiny and just end up living a dream for the other people or living the life that was destined by others, not a self destiny, but destined by the others. And so with all that amazing stories and insight, Uh, I would love for you to design a mentorship program and to instill a series of mentorship advices for the people as a starting step for you to get to that 1 million people dream of yours is to empower 1 million people. And how are you going to urge the listeners to stay away and no longer seek that street credits, but start embracing and seeking that self credits? Because the thing about street credits is it's very volatile. So yes. Because you you are yes. dependent on the perception of what the street's thinking of you as. So yes. screw that, because external validations will always go away. But rather focus on self-credits, accrediting yourself, because right. that's the only way we're going to ultimately achieve that alignment that we're speaking to.
3: Right, right. No, totally, totally. And I would start off by using the imagery of a cruise ship. I I grew up kind of, my parents... You know they they made enough money for us to go on vacation sometimes I and mean, we would go on these big cruise ships and i would always be fascinated at how like whenever we would like, go to a port like they would drop an anchor until like, i keep the, the ship from like moving i asked them questions like how does the ship not float away you know what i mean how does it not just like drift away from the port and like leave us stranded on this island um and my mom explained to me like, it drops this big anchor that kind of holds it firm and it kind of is able to not go along with the waves and i think that's so important because with our confidence with our self-worth with our uh understanding of ourselves we place our worth on the waves and of course it's gonna go it's gonna be so volatile this perfect one i know i'm pretty but when i go on instagram i don't get enough likes so i'm ugly you place your self-worth on something so volatile such as instagram likes that are just going to kill you in the end they're going to hurt you in the end so the question you should ask yourself is where do you put your anchor? do you even drop an anchor at all do you have a level of faith within yourself that's going to hold you firm because if you don't you're just going to be drifting 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 and that's such an important image um because people don't realize that they don't realize that they need to kind of fill their own cup instead of asking others to fill theirs it's so hard and it goes full circle to what I was talking about before as a Christian we are told to love ourselves first literally you have to love yourself before you can love others it it can't be reversed so if I were to design a mentorship program I would literally use that first image of the cruise ship as a starting point then I would get into talking about where do you place yourself worth like is it what you think about you or is what others think about you that's kind of a different thing um, and that's kind of how it comes full circle though. how everything we talk about today is you are responsible for you, and how you respond
0: to situations. but you should deem yourself worthy. So well said, man. So that's the perfect way we kind of want to leave our audience off with, but we usually leave our guests and audience with one final question, as well as a self-plugging session for you to do at the end. But cool. We have a challenge for you as well as a recommendation for our audience. So okay? We want to challenge you to discover more about something in your life this week. So you can either share it or keep it to yourself. But then also, it can be related to a lot of the stuff that we talked about throughout this wide-ranging conversation. But what would you encourage people to discover more about in their own respective lives?
3: It's a really good question. I think I would encourage people to discover more about what they know they can be consistent at. What you can be consistent with, you will be successful at. I truly believe that. If you are consistent with going to the gym every day, I mean, not every day, but if you are consistent and keeping a regimented schedule of going to the gym, you will be successful. Like, that is how it works. Like, I think people just discount consistency. And me included. Like, I wanted to, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to get rich. I wanted to, you know, be on the cover of Fourth Magazine. And then, like, you know, I wanted to be the Jeff Bezos and the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs. I wanted that, you know what I mean? And I wanted all the fast ways to get there. That's why you see all these YouTube gurus coming out saying, buy my email marketing program, da 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 Like, that's why you see all this shortcut stuff. But nothing beats consistency, like nothing. So I would encourage everyone to discover what can you be consistent at because then you'll be successful at that thing. But that's a hard question to answer because – you'll lie to yourself, <laughs> you'll lie to yourself, you'll say, Oh, I can be consistent with going to the gym every day. <laughs> can, can you? You know what I mean? So yeah, that, that's something I would encourage people to, be, to discover more
1: about. Yeah, such an elegant way to answer that question. And, you know, we see why Wes Wilson is his chief storyteller. You know, you, you're, you embody you. this virtuous ability to deliver stories in no other way. Thank it, you. It's, it's amazing. And it's extremely captivating. Thank you so much. And I don't think that we can hammer down the message of consistency so much. But, of course, it's a cliche, right? Everyone talks about consistency, persistency, grit, mm-hmm. mental fortitude. And what I like to always say is every cliche is tropes. If it's a cliche, then there's a lot of truth in that statement. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and also, you talked about consistency. Uh, I'm saying this as a joke, but I think it also helps with your statements that the reason why lottery is a thing because it's the inheritance idea that if you buy a lottery, you have a shortcut to immense wealth. So without the instant gratification mindset, without that shortcut tendencies, lottery would not be doing well. Like Nobody would be buying lottery. But as I was thinking about that, I realized so even with that, even you're looking for a shortcut, you have to consistently buy lottery tickets to increase (laughs) your probability of winning a lottery ticket, Right. So even though you're seeking that shortcut, you're buying a Powerball twice a year versus someone habitually buying that lottery ticket every single day or every single weekend. Statistically speaking, the latter, who is dedicating a practice to buy lottery as a habitual practice, probably has exponential higher chances of becoming that billionaire and millionaire shortcut. So obviously it's a joke but i think once again talks about the underlying message of you have to be consistent and you have to view anything and everything as a practice in perpetuity and that is the only way to achieve or amount to their predestined success whatever
3: that may means and yeah, i want to i want to add to that too guy i have so much i could delve into this because i think it's so- so important i think one way that i mean obviously what prevents people from doing anything whether that's losing weight or trying to gain weight like myself or starting a business or writing a book is they are afraid that they won't receive the immediate gratification or the immediate rewards from it and our initial like physiological design and and psychological design as humans is we want to avoid pain and literally even think deeper into it that like why is not receiving that immediate gratification so painful to you? Is that based on external motivations? Like, are you trying to, to write this book, to be a bestseller so you can finally say to your girlfriend, look, look, I made it, you know what I mean? Or what, what's the actual motivation? So the best way to trump all that and get rid of all that is like asking yourself the question, okay, if I started a business tomorrow, would I be okay with that business not gaining dollar and profit for the next 10 years? Would I be okay with that? And you are extremely honest with yourself. And if that answer is no, don't do it. Because if you're not able to put off the immediate gratification and you're willing to accept that pain, then that kind of like, I don't want to say cures it, but like that kind of is like you are addressing and confronting the fear that you have. And I think people don't want to address that fear. So they just like say, yeah, I'll do it. Okay, your actions will show. I mean, your actions will show. That's why New Year's resolutions, don't last my long. wrong. I don't set resolutions anymore. I don't, I don't do that. That's why you see that, like when gym memberships spike up January 1st and then by January 31st, it's back down because people don't wanna be consistent. That pain is too high. And the second thing I was gonna say is we should make success a mentality, not a behavior. And it's a, it's a very, very different thing. When you think about all the success stories of Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, or Steve Jobs, these dudes did it every single day. This was not a behavior. This was a way of thinking. This was it consumed them. Like it would, and I'm not trying to say be productive all the time. I'm not saying that at all. But like, what you should want should kind of always be on your mind. Writing this book for the four months, every day, I, it was on my mind, which drove me to practice it every day. And I think we have mentioned before how much of entrepreneurship is a practice instead of just a, like a, a option fad. that would, Yeah, fat. Yeah, you know I mean? It's not a behavior. It's a mentality. It really is. I really think we should really try to align success as a mentality um, and not as a behavior.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful reframe that's so yeah. simple of taking away the end result to focus on and focus on the process. That's definitely yeah. something that I preach a lot when it comes to my health coaching. It's like just focus on the process of the everyday I mean, for you talking about your book, you weren't looking to be a New York Times bestseller. You were focused on the process of writing an impactful and courageous book. So that's a powerful reframe that we're definitely going to, or myself especially, is going to walk away from this conversation with of focusing on the process, doing the things day by day consistently.
1: And it's an oxymoron, right? Like you talked about so beautifully, you have to own that success as a mindset to produce that success. Yeah. It's just like you yourself as Wes Wilson, the oxymoron that we talked about today. Yeah. You personified that oxymoron this with your journey uh, from owning your anxiety, social anxiety, to become a speaker who gave <clears throat> your first TED Talk last year, April. From yeah. owning your learning disabilities, your identity as a sped growing up into yep. entering the number one entrepreneurship program in the world and yep. becoming this esteemed speaker that you are the shows throughout your stories, like own that success as a mindset to produce a success, to ultimately align yourself to your predestined self, which is amazingly said. With that, we want you to fully own this moment, this red carpet moment. We're gonna roll out the red carpet for you to own your identity, embrace your projects, and to share with how people can connect with your amazing storytelling and so much more.
3: Thank you, man. I also wanna add real quick that, like I said, I'm a spiritual person, I pray, It was a few weeks ago where I I prayed and I just asked for confirmation of what I was doing. I wasn't doubting it, it was more so I ran into a I hit a brick wall, I hit a I hit a wall and my writer's block a little bit. And I believe everything happens for a reason and and God kind of puts certain things and people in in your spot uh, to confirm his purpose for you. And I wanna say this was definitely one big confirmation. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Aiden, for reaching out to me to, you know, DM me off rip and this has been wild. Hearing what you just said, Ben, that really just makes me want to cry. <laughs> so, thank you so much, man. Uh, I, I love this. This was a long interview, but this was definitely, definitely one for the book. So, thank you so much, hands
0: down. Thank you as well, man. It's been a beautiful conversation. We've came out with so much information and just ins- inspiration from all of this. <laughs> yes. Your stories, yes. Your stories go so far, and it's going to be one that I always remember. So, much appreciated as well.
1: Yeah, so where could people find you and connect you with? Uh, feel free to share your LinkedIn, your Instagram, your website, your books, and everything here.
3: You can find me at Wes Woodson everywhere, like, like everywhere, uh, except for Twitter. It's at Wes Woodson, and at the end of Woodson, there's an underscore. On TikTok, Wes Woodson. Facebook, Wes Woodson. Uh, Instagram, Wes Woodson. I have my own website, weswoodson.com. You can also support the brand. We come out with our new hoodie and our full line of clothing that's coming out alongside of the launch of the book at or Um And yeah, I look forward to connecting with you guys there. Feel free to DM me. I love to talk about mental health or storytelling, entrepreneurship, or just talking to a friend. So uh, yeah, that's where you can find me.
1: For everyone else, and of course, to you, Wes, really appreciate nearly four hours of this conversation. I know this is by far the longest interview you've ever done from your 45 minutes platform that you usually are used to. Uh, For everyone, as always, we will include all the details of Wes's brand, his launch, his drop of his clothing brand, The Hidden, and the launch of the book, and everything in between in the show notes. And to all the listeners, thank you, as always, for discovering more with us this week. And as always, till next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And it would really appreciate
0: if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.